If you will take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews. We return to Hebrews chapter 7, and the 11th verse is where we will begin again. Hebrews chapter 7, if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, if you are able. If you are not, there is no guilt applied. Hebrews chapter 7, starting again at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we think on this change of the priesthood and this change of our relationship to you and try to put it in the context of your coming, we pray, God, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive and to understand. We pray, God, that your truth would be powerfully evident unto us and that the hope of your coming would fill us with joy and that it would inspire us, God, and just inflame our hearts to share the truth of who Christ is. God, I pray that all who are here in this time would know you, and any who are here who do not, I pray that you would open their hearts, God, either present or listening uh, on the internet or, or any other medium, Father, we just pray that you would be merciful and that you would call the dead to life. God, grant to us grace and peace and help us honor Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the question I want to address with you this morning is what happens when God himself comes into our world? Today um, is Christmas Eve. We start to really ramp up our celebration of his coming. And, and this evening we'll celebrate the night that is truly a night of nights in all of human history, the coming of God into our fallen estate. It is the most wondrous and mysterious event, and its remembrance is precious to us all. We set aside this night to commemorate this most spectacular of realities, and in doing so, we come face to face with this most inexplicable thing, that God himself has entered into his creation and has set right what sin destroyed. No one could decide to do this but God. No other will could fulfill nor even begin the work. And it was not a task that could be accomplished by a proxy. It could not be accomplished by an emissary or even by a commissioned ambassador. It was something that could only be done by God himself. And it's important for us to note as we are launching into this through Hebrews 7 as we're discussing the priesthood prior to this season and thinking about how Christ brought a change that the priesthood could not accomplish the task of uniting us with God. The old way of doing things, the, the fact of, of our righteous obedience unto the law could not get it done. 
We were condemned because of our constant failure. We were condemned because everything that we sought to do could never be enough. That's the basic state of mankind. And anyone who is outside of Christ, anyone who seeks only to fulfill their obedience by their own work, is still without hope. No matter how good they are, no matter how faithful they try to be, no matter how obedient they set themselves to be to the law, no matter how carefully they follow every single mandate, no matter how many good deeds they pile up, they will never accomplish enough righteousness to satisfy the holy God. And this is the reality of our lives. This is the heart of everything that drives us to Jesus. It is why God came. Because every other religion is man's effort to get to God. Even Judaism was focused on the work of man. The high priest offering sacrifices and working atonement for sin was at best incomplete. It had to be repeated over and over and over again, even as they obeyed what God told them to do. This is why God says in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. This is something that God had to do. He had to enter into humanity if we were to be saved. Because when Christ came, everything changed. God himself had taken a hand in the matter. And he had set himself to complete the task of transforming this fallen world back into a place where his children dwell. Now this is the reality of of all of mankind that must be reckoned. If you are not found in Christ, you are not a child of God, period. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, told them, you are of your father, the devil. That's hard language, but it's the language of Jesus. It's words he used to express the fundamental need that all of us have to be reconciled to a God from whom we were distanced and alienated by our sin. And if we don't reckon this, if we don't understand that we're never going to be able to get there on our own, then none of this matters. Those who want to turn Christmas into something about Santa Claus or goodwill or some magical spirit that lives in a bell or whatever nonsense people come up with, it is the reality that Christmas means God has come among us to do what we could not do. And if we do not embrace that truth, then what you do with the season makes no difference at all. It is as empty and as ambiguous as the world wants to make it by being offended at just wishing somebody a Merry Christmas. It's nonsense. If, I'm, if I am in a, in a place where I'm speaking to a Muslim and they wish me a happy Muslim holiday, whatever it is, I'll thank them. If I'm speaking to a Jew and he says, Happy Hanukkah, I'll say, Thank you. You as well. I hope you enjoy your celebration. There's no need to be offended, but we want to turn it into offense because what we want to do is eradicate God from our lives. Now, the truth is, is that apart from Christ, that's already how it is. There is no sense of God present in the natural man. 
We have no desire for him. We have no hunger for him. We will fill our lives with every empty vanity and think that we're okay. It is not until God himself intervenes that there is any hope beyond that. That's why God intervened by coming, and it's why God must intervene by calling us to life. What God did when he came was open the door for us to come to him because Jesus was not just another preacher. He was God made flesh. He was God with us. He was God incarnate and present among us. He said to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. And in that statement, he invoked the proper name of God. He said, before Abraham was, Yahweh. I speak the name of God because it is my name. I'm telling you who I am. I'm telling you who I've always been. And don't believe for one minute that that's not what he was saying because the Jews he was speaking to got the point. The very next verse says they took up stones with which to kill him because he had dared to make himself equal to God. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus didn't profess to be God. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus doesn't need to be God. Don't let anybody make of Christmas something less than what it is, which is God putting on flesh and becoming one of us. Because what Christmas really is at its heart is the coming of God. It is the reality that God entered into human history in a way that he never had before. Jesus had indeed come among us in pre-incarnate states on many occasions throughout Scripture, but they were momentary brief flashes of God guiding or interceding or injecting himself in for just a moment. But when Jesus came incarnate, he came forever to bear our humanity. And he came forever to satisfy the righteous requirement of God in the law. When God entered history, everything changed. When God set foot into his creation, everything changed and a lot of things happened. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that what God proclaimed was not this. He didn't say, you guys better straighten up your act or I'm going to come back here and whoop up on you. That's how we would have put it. Because that's what we tell our kids and that's how we set ourselves to try and make people pay attention. Right? You better do this or there will be consequences for you. Just had that conversation with Ivan this morning. <laughs> but here's the reality. That's not what God did. You know why? Because we can't. Think on it like this. Suppose what I was upset with my youngest son about was his not flying around the room by flapping his arms. And I said to him, you better get this right and you better start flying right now or you and I are going to have problems. Would that be cruel? Unreasonable? It would be because he can't. What I corrected him about was something he could do, which is to stop being naughty. I think he can do it. I digress. You see, God didn't come to us and say, you better do this thing. 
Because we can't. We could not obey the law. We never could. We never can. We never will. We cannot satisfy the righteous requirement of the law because we are fundamentally broken. In fact, the scripture says we are spiritually dead. We are cut off from God, cut off from life, cut off from hope, cut off from spiritual reality, and cut off from the ability to do anything that pleases him. Our best actions, according to scripture, are rags. Our highest righteousness is filthy, appallingly disgusting rags. The ickiest stuff you would ever imagine. That's the very best we can bring to the table. So God didn't come to us and say, you better straighten up your act. Look at me at Luke chapter 2. And let's think on what it is that God did say. Because there was a proclamation. But the proclamation was a proclamation of peace. Luke chapter 2. Starting at verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. So there is the proclamation of God to his fallen creation. Behold, I send you a savior. I send you somebody who will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And the net result of my sending him is peace. Upon you, I pronounce my peace. This is the declaration of God at Christmas. This is the declaration of God when he injected himself into our lives and into our history. Peace was declared. And more than peace being declared, good is enacted. So he didn't just come to talk a nice game. That's not how God works. Look at Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. This is one of those passages that Jesus referred to and, and made mention of regarding himself. This is Jesus' assessment of his own ministry. This is one of the first passages of Scripture that we ever have record of Jesus reading aloud and discoursing upon. So Isaiah 61, beginning at verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn and to console those who mourn in Zion, to give to them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, 
the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What did Jesus come to do? He came to fulfill every promise that God ever made. He came to deliver the promise of restoration. He came to declare for us that the war between us and God was over as far as God was concerned. And that God was going to pay the price. And that God was going to fully enact everything that was needed to bring us to himself. Jesus came to deliver the power of God's answered promise at every point of our need. Just look at this list again. I just want you to see this. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. So that Jesus' coming is liberating. It frees us from the bondage of sin. Verse 2 says, to comfort those who mourn. He is comforting to us. Is there sorrow in your life? Are you mourning at some point? Christ came to comfort. To give them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. He restores us. He came to restore. He came to redeem that which was lost. A garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. If you are downhearted, if you are burdened, if you are weary, if you are sorrowful, he is uplifting. He came to lift your spirits and to restore your hope. And he did this so that the glory of the Lord might be declared because ultimately anything that's just about you will die with you. Any pleasure that you take in yourself, any passion or pursuit that you follow that has no impact beyond your own personal pleasure, when you are gone, so too is it. So if God gave you everything that he gave you just so you could enjoy it, that's pretty short-lived and fairly short-sighted. But God gave us what he gave us so that we might glorify him. And since he never dies, the good that he gives to us also never will die. There is the opportunity to have a life and a meaning and an impact that goes beyond us. It is why we are here. We are here for the sake of the glory of the one who is more. This is the good that is enacted. But he also gives to us the power to demonstrate what he has come to do. There, there is an applied reality of the power of God in everything that Jesus did. I told you that he is the answer of God to all of his promises. He is the yes and amen of God to every promise he ever gave. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, In him all of the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of the Father. Every single word that God ever said, I'm going to do this, the yes is Jesus. And the power to accomplish it in a way that you can see comes with him as well. Because God did not just insert himself into history as some sort of a vague spirit. Right? This is the idea that people want to have about the spirit of Christmas. It's this wonderful little happy time of year because we're not really sure why, but everybody just feels better. It's the spirit of Christmas. No, it's not. There is the truth that Christmas gives us joy and it gives us hope, but it gives us hope because of what's underneath it. 
It gives us hope because Christ came and put on flesh and became one of us. And more than that, he brought with him the power to not only say yes to everything God did, but to actually fulfill that yes with action and with authority. What are some of the things that Jesus brings to us in power? Well, first of all, let me give you a little backstory. When Jesus came, he was coming at the tail end of John the Baptist's ministry. John was his cousin, and John had been ministering about six months before Jesus came on the scene. And John had been declaring to the people, there is somebody coming who is greater than I. In fact, I am not worthy to even untie his sandals. He is the one that God has foretold. He is the one who will set us free. And the first time John saw Jesus coming over the hill to him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew who Jesus was. He understood what Jesus came to do. But shortly after Jesus started his ministry, as John continued his, John got sideways to the authorities. And Herod put him in prison, was about to kill him. And John sent his people back to Jesus, and his question was this, was I wrong? Are you really the one who was to come? Because I'm about to lose my head for this. Was I wrong? And I want you to pay attention to what Jesus answered. Matthew 11, starting at verse 4, Jesus answered and told them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Here's the list. The blind see... The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So Jesus laid out what he wanted them to see. So let's take a look at some of these things. As he, he gave this message of hope to John, then clearly the things that he was speaking of gave testament to who he was and what he came to do. Amen? That makes sense? If he's going to answer John's question, and he did, he answered it by his actions. And he said, look, I just want you to go and tell John what you see. Go and show him, give him testimony of the things that are going on. So John chapter 9, the Gospel of John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. We're going to read some of these accounts in Scripture of the things that Jesus was doing and see if we can put some of this together. So John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work, and as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground, and he made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the man with the clay. And he said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went, and he washed, and he came back seeing. Now the scripture tells us later on that the man was about 40 years old when this was done. And never in all of history had anybody ever given sight to somebody who was born blind and 40 years of blindness had ensued. 
But I want to first of all draw your attention to what Jesus gave as an answer to his disciples. You see, they asked the question based out of their understanding of the world. They said, this bad thing has happened to this man. He was born blind. Somebody sinned. If you've been coming to Bible study before church, you will know we're going through the book of Job, and that's a pretty common theme. The belief was, if bad things happen, you did bad things to deserve it. That's not how the scripture teaches it, but that's how people think. And if you think about how we ourselves process things, we're often guilty of the same misunderstanding. Something bad has happened, therefore you did something to deserve it. It's not always true. Jesus gave an answer which I have heard people today say that's not what he meant. I heard a preacher one time in the midst of a sermon say, I don't know what that verse means, but it doesn't mean what Jesus said. That was the last time I ever went to that church because that man had no business speaking to God's people. But what did Jesus say? He said, God set this whole thing up. He has spent 40 years without sight because I am going to give him sight and show you who God is. Do you understand how important that makes our understanding of God? Just think about that for a minute. 40 years without sight. 40 years of not having any input. And 40 years of being so maimed by how you were born that you weren't even given a proper name. The scripture elsewhere refers to this man as blind Bartimaeus. Sounds like he's got a name, doesn't it? See, in the Hebrew, bar means son of. So all they called him was the blind son of Timaeus. It's not really much of a name, is it? He wasn't worthy of being given a name himself. He was just worthy of being identified by these characteristics. He was the blind son of Timaeus. And for 40 years, that was his identity. And for 40 years, that was his prison. And Jesus said that that 40 years was worth the exchange that was about to happen. Because not only was he going to be given his physical sight, he was going to be given his spiritual sight. He was going to see God. And beloved, here's what we have to understand. In a world filled with misery and pain and sorrow and destruction and death and rebellion and every wretched thing that we see around us all the time, God is not out of control of his creation. He is fashioning glory and he is fashioning glory through those events and in the midst of those events to prepare us for the time when we will see him. And if we rightly understand how wondrous it is to see him, we will declare it is worth it all. But that requires of us faith and sight that you do not possess until God touches you. You say, well, that's a lot to take in, preacher man. Well, let's just see how the man himself took it. Skip down to verse 24. So the Jews, let me just give you the backstory real quick. It'll be faster than reading all these verses. 
the Jews were offended that Jesus had healed him because this was a Sabbath day. And Jesus healed him by putting clay on his eyes, which they classified as work. And so they brought in his parents and they said, is this your son? And then they said, well, you, you need to go talk to him. He's of age. Because the Jews had decided that anybody who defended Jesus would be kicked out of the synagogue. So when his parents punted him out into the midst of the road, as they had been doing all their lives, you know, this is just blind Timaeus's boy, <laughs> Timaeus's blind boy, the Jews called him in. Now listen to the exchange. Verse 24. So they called the man who was blind. And they said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, though, is that I was blind and now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I told you already. You didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? I like this guy. They reviled him and they said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. Listen. The man answered and said, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he has opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Beloved, that's a testimony. Do you hear his valuing of what he's lived through and what he's just been given? I don't care about any of it, he says. All I know is that he just gave me sight. This man is from God. And I'm going to follow him until the day that I die. Do you also want to become one of his disciples? I love that question. <laughs> just for the rest of the story, they didn't. They kicked him out. They banished him from the, from the synagogue and they refused to let him partake in their Jewishness anymore. And Jesus found him and said, come on with me. Because that's who Jesus is. But you see, the first thing that Jesus does is he opens the eyes of the blind so that we might behold God. Because every single one of us is born spiritually blind. Every single one of us is born without the ability to see or comprehend who God is. So we make him up. We fashion a God according to our own pleasures and we fashion God according to our own desires and we fashion God according to the things that we think he ought to be. And there is no shortage of nonsense about God available for people to take in on the internet. And there is no shortage of nonsense about God available for people to take in from preachers all over the place. And there is no shortage of nonsense about God available for people to take in from anybody who wants to just talk instead of taking in the Word of God. And the problem is, is that until God opens our eyes, we're satisfied with that. We think to ourselves, that sounds good to me. I don't know who God is. I don't know what God's about. But this guy says he knows, so I'll take him at his word. 
I promise you, God is not a crystalline structure of water. God is God. He made everything that is. He invented water. I promise you, God is not a pigeon or a puppy. He made those things. He made all things. He spoke them into being. And the scripture tells us, and we read it this morning, that without Christ, nothing was made that was made because in the beginning was the Word and God spoke things into being. Which is why the very next thing that Jesus tells John's disciples, the blind see and the deaf hear. Right? You see, there is a reality that says that if I can't see God and I can't understand who He is and I can't understand what He's done and I can't make anything work in in my own way and in my own thinking, then I'm going to make it up. And if I make it up, it's going to sound the way I want it to sound because I don't know any different. But if I listen to the voice of God, then it's going to sound like what God says, presuming I hear Him. But I can't hear Him if I'm deaf. I can't hear him if I'm spiritually deaf. Amen? Turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 32. They brought to him one who was deaf and who had an impediment to his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. He took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and he said to him, Ephathatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed. And he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond all measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He has done all things well is a testimony to the power of God. It is the reality that God opens our ears that we might hear his truth. And he looses our tongues that we might declare his praises. Because it is the, recipro- the reciprocal effect, speaking of loosing my tongue, it is the reciprocal effect of hearing and beholding beauty that you want to praise it yourself. There is a reciprocity in that. There is a give and take. Anybody who truly delights in something longs to praise it. C.S. Lewis points this out about all of life. The world is filled with praise. It is filled with people declaring the praises of their favorite book or declaring the praises of their favorite song, lovers declaring the praise of their beloved. And everything in the world revolves around praise, and yet the world says, no, 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 don't you dare talk to me about this God that you love. Look, you don't have to believe in him. You are welcome to die and go to hell. And I don't mean that harshly. But you do not have the right to tell me that I may not speak of the God who made me live. 
I have the right to declare his praises. And beloved, hear me carefully. Every single time they try to limit your speech, that is the target in view. Every single time they try to tell you that you may not speak truth to anyone, that you may not speak a word that is in conflict with how the world wants you to think, the target in view is silencing the testimony of God. Do not lose sight of what is at stake. We must hold the truth of all that God is and all that God has said. And we must declare that truth with passion. Not only now at Christmas time by saying Merry Christmas and declaring the truth of the Nativity and putting up religious things in public spaces and all the things that everybody else is allowed to do except Christians, but we have to declare this every day of our lives that God is exactly who He says He is and be unapologetic about what it is to declare His praises. We must. God deserves it, does He not? Does He not deserve the fullness of our love? He has opened our eyes. He has opened our ears. And more than that, He has caused the lame to walk. Look at Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Again, he entered Capernaum, and after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Now, Jesus is in the house, right? This means he was at Peter's place. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for getting that reference. He was at Peter's place, right? Every time he was in Capernaum, that's where they went. They went to the house of Peter. That was the place that was known as the center of Jesus' ministry in Capernaum. So he's in Peter's house. And immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them and not even come near to the door. So he preached the word to them. Jesus is here proclaiming the word. They came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Whose house? Peter's. These men, I think, had a death wish because Peter was the dude who had a temper. He was the one with the sword. He was the one who cut off the servant's ear. He was the one who was a fisherman. He was the one who was loud and brash and a man of unclean lips. He was not the nicest of the disciples. And this is Peter's roof. And they just ripped a hole in it. So they let him down, and Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiving you. Before we go on, I just want to speak to the uh, that had to be in the minds of these men. We just risked our lives. We may yet die for this. <laughs> so that we could bring our friend to Jesus, not so that he could be forgiven. Because remember, they're not living themselves. That's not on their agenda. That's not on their radar. They don't care about his sins. All they care about is that their friend is lame and has been and can't walk and, and they want him healed. And Jesus starts off by saying, your sins are forgiven. 
And I, I have to believe that when they heard that, they just all four hung their heads and arms down in the hole and went, oh, 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 oh no. The Pharisees also heard what he said. Verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemy like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I want to point out to you that they're right. Who can forgive sins but God? No one. You say, well, you tell me that Jesus can forgive my sins. I do. And why do I tell you that? Because he's God, right? What is the whole point of everything I'm saying this morning? God stepped into human history. His name is Jesus. So the scribes are right in their question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he didn't hear them by his ears, but he knew it because he's God. He said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you or arise and take up your bed and walk. Now there's a question for us. If I'm a charlatan and you bring me a paralytic and the cameras are rolling and there's no way in the world that this could be the plant that it usually is and I say to this guy, get up and walk, and he doesn't, am I exposed? Uh-huh. But if I say to him, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. You don't know whether he's forgiven or not. You have no power to determine whether or not that just happened. What I just did was sidestep the issue. So Jesus asks the question, what's easier to say? What's the obvious answer? It's easier to declare that your sins are forgiven because there's no evidence one way or the other. Does he stop there, though? No. Because all of this is designed by him to show us exactly who he is. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So here's why. Okay? So that you might know that he has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose, and he took up the bed, and he went out in the presence of them all, so that they were amazed, and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus displayed that he was exactly who he said he was and that he had the authority to do what he said he was doing. And in doing that, the testimony to it was the power of the lame man walking. Look, don't miss the truth that every single time Jesus committed some miraculous act, there was a point behind it. Yes, he was merciful. Yes, he had compassion on those who were broken but they were always given to a point. And the point was always the same because he knows we need lots of lessons because generally speaking, we're fairly stupid. The point was this. I am God and I have the authority to do everything that I say I came to do. And that's going to matter to you when I die for your sins because I have the authority to forgive them. 
Do you understand? Jesus gave the testimony to John. Look at my actions. The blind see. The deaf hear. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. Mark 1, chapter 40, or verse 40 says, A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling down and saying to him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I'm willing to be clean. And as soon as he had spoken immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. See, the sick are healed. Matthew 9, verse 20. Suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came up from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if I may only touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that very hour. And the dead, beloved, is there anything more final than death? But the scripture tells us that Jesus raised the dead on several occasions. Look at me at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 11. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came. And he touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Great fear came upon them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. There's the statement. Who can raise the dead but God himself? You say, well, you know, maybe he wasn't really dead. Okay, I'll grant you that. It's possible. Look at John chapter 14. I'm sorry, John chapter 11, first of all. John chapter 11, starting at verse 17. So Jesus has had this friend named Lazarus. He was the brother of Mary and Martha and their home in Bethany was kind of Jesus' home court when he was in the Jerusalem area. And um, Lazarus got sick and died. And Jesus tarried going back to heal Lazarus, stayed away long enough for Lazarus to die. And um, that's an important note because it, it gives us some perspective on why Jesus does what Jesus does. So we're going to pick it up at verse 11. When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and their brother, or Martha and Mary, to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha said, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in a place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Never one to miss a show, are we? Then Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And Jews said, see how he loved him. Then some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? What's the answer? Yes. Jesus tarried so that Lazarus would die. He could have saved him. He could have saved him with a word from where he was. He didn't even need to come and heal him. The centurion showed us that. Jesus let Lazarus die. And he let Lazarus die for this moment. Then Jesus came again, groaning in himself, and he came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Now, we're going to read a little bit more, but I just want you to get this. You say the son of the widow of Nain could have just been not quite dead yet. Mostly dead. Been mostly dead all day. Right? But Lazarus? He's been in the grave for four days. He's been embalmed. Now, the Jews didn't do Egyptian embalming. They didn't take out the organs and stuff. But he's been heavily wrapped with spices that are even now causing him to decompose and decompose quickly. Martha knew what was cooking in that cave. And she said, Lord, you don't want to take that door off. The King James puts it very explicitly. He stinketh. He stinks. He's dead. He's been dead for four days. You could have saved him, but you didn't. You know, that's kind of the condition we find our world in today. We look at the world around us. We look at the chaos going mad everywhere. And I don't know about you, but I think sometimes, God, you could have stopped this. You could stop it right now. I don't know why you aren't. And the truth is, is that he's doing the same thing here that he was doing at the grave of Lazarus. He's displaying himself. It's the same thing he told John the Baptist. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the sick are healed, the dead are raised up. Then they took away... I'm sorry. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, 
Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So what's going on here? This is a declaration of the glory of God. This is the truth that God has come among us, being displayed in a way that is irrefutable. So they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. A man in a tomb for four days raised. You think to yourself, that had to convince them. Man, they, they just saw somebody raised from the dead who'd been in the ground for four days. That's almost, it's over half a week. They, they had to believe. Skip down to chapter 12. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. They're having a party for Jesus and for Lazarus. They're at the house there. A great many of the Jews knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised up from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. See, as soon as Jesus raised Lazarus, the chief priest decided, he's got to go. We're going to kill him. He cannot stay any longer. But do you see the evil of their hearts? It's extended to the point where now they're saying, we also have to kill Lazarus because we can't refute what has been done. We can't undo, well, we can undo it. That was their plan. But we, we can't make it not have happened. We can't refute it. We have no argument for it. We have no way to stop what's happening except to kill Lazarus and Jesus. We have to put an end to this. You see, the problem is, is that whenever God sets himself into our lives, it comes up against sin, which remains. And if peace has been declared and power has been demonstrated then we have to ask the question, what's been done with the sin that is the root of our problem? What did Jesus come to do? Did he just come to make life better? No. He came to break sin. He came to free us from the bondage of our rebellion against God. He came that we might have life. And he came that we might have life abundantly. He came to set us free. Look at Romans chapter 3 with me. Romans chapter 3. And we're just going to read from verse 21 and a few verses. Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What did Jesus say when he healed the paralytic? I want you to know that I have the power and the right to forgive sin. Therefore, I'm going to verify what I said to him by healing him. Everything he did and everything he said was to verify this essential truth. Because God was vindicating his own righteousness in sending Jesus. God was demonstrating that he was both just and could still be just while he justifies us. Because the truth is, we all know in our guts that just saying somebody is not guilty of something that they are guilty of with no punishment and no dealing with the issue is a bunch of hogwash. That's why it angers us when when the government says, oh, don't worry about these people that are stealing. Don't worry about these people that are doing all these things because we know that's just not right. We know that. And you see, all of creation knows that sin has to be dealt with. And if we are rebels against a holy God, then we have to be dealt with. So if God leaves us to deal with our sin on our own, what is the consequence? We are eternally under his wrath. We are condemned. We remain dead. We remain sick, blind, lame, deaf. We have no hope. We have no freedom. If God leaves us to our own recourse, that is the only solution. They are all guilty. Let them pay for their sin. But God wants to justify us. He intended to justify us all along. So he had to justify us in a way that leaves him still just. Because there is nothing more horrifying in all of my imagination and yours too, if you will put it to use, than a God who is in control of all things, who is not also just. Amen? It is, it is our government to the nth degree, having all the power to do whatever it wants to do and sets itself to do things wrong. What a world. But you see, God is not unjust. So God satisfied justice through the death of Jesus Christ in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus was on the cross, he literally became our sin, and God punished our sin in him. He died as payment for our wrong. He died as payment for your wrong, for your rebellion against a holy God. He died for those who hated him. 
And in his death, he fully satisfied the justice of God for our sin and gave to us the righteousness that God requires. And God counts it to our credit as if we had done everything right. Which is why in the coming of Christ, not only is sin broken and banished, but so also is darkness. It has no hold on us. It has no power to blind us any longer. Darkness has been removed. John chapter 8 verse 12 said, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Or John chapter 12, verse 46, he said, I have come as a light to the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And with that light also has come life. John 11, verses 25 and 26, we just read them. Jesus said to, her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I pray that you do. See, Jesus said in John chapter 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, all of it comes down to this. The whole point of everything I've been trying to say comes down to this. When God comes into the world, what happens? Life. Life comes into the world. God entered his creation, and in him entering his creation, he gives to those who are found in Christ eternal life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. And you have to ask the question, what is life? Well, in John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus defines it like this. This is eternal life that they may know you, that's God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus defines life in the context of our relationship with God being restored. And when you take all of these things and you put them together, it gives us a perspective on His coming that changes everything. Because when we celebrate the coming of Christ, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate God inserting himself into human history, what we are celebrating is God giving to the dead life. We're celebrating God giving us himself, a relationship with him that changes everything. And we are celebrating the truth that no matter what goes on around us, God always wins. Because in him is life, and that life was the light of men. And everything you want, and everything you need, and everything you desire, and everything you don't even know that you desire, is found and answered in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he is not only the reason for the season, but he is the reason for everything. It all comes down to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would take this stumbling, rambling thing and make it live in the hearts of those who hear. And I pray, God, that by your mercy and by your grace, 
the dead would be raised, and Christ would be honored, and the King would be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name, and for His glory alone we pray. Amen.